Good morning. This is the doctor's letter. The doctor's letter, February 2018. I've spent the month of February travelling in Malaysia, India, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. From previous experience of travel, I expected to have plenty of time to write during the night. When you're on your own, you can sleep and wake when you like without people telling you there's something wrong with you. When I'm asked, do you sleep well? I answer, yes, I sleep well, but not long. So if I wake at 4am, I don't lie awake looking at the ceiling. I get up and deal with emails and then I write. To my surprise on this trip, I'm sleeping like a log and busy during the day. Today, I'm in Dubai for 24 hours, having sneakily stolen a day between work commitments in Calcutta and Abu Dhabi. The great thing about Dubai is there's nothing to do. Nothing that isn't hideously expensive, that is. So this morning I had a swim and tried to keep up with an Adonis-like Australian who does triathlons. Eventually, cramp in my calf muscles forced me to give in. A leisurely shower using obscene amount of water in a place that has the highest carbon footprint per capita in the world was followed by my now usual breakfast of fruit, followed by a plain omelette with lots of green chilies. Are you sure? But enough of this description of food. This isn't supposed to be a food blog, there are enough of those. However, for this month's doctor's letter, because I have spent virtually the whole month travelling, the theme will be travel. February 1958. On the 1st of February 1958, Egypt and Syria announced the formation of a United Arab Republic. In the 60 years since then, the Arab world has been ravaged by internal and external threats, as well as confused by the existence of Israel. The British have a tradition of breaking things up when they leave. Ireland, India, Palestine, football stadiums. So, in a vain attempt to give the Jews a homeland, and God knows in 1948 the Jews deserved a bit of luck, they designated Israel as that place. Unfortunately, the Palestinians were already living there, so they had to be moved out. And 70 years later, Jerusalem is still claimed by both the Israelis and the Palestinians, and outside influences like Saudi Arabia and the United States continue to cause suffering in the Arab world as they play the global power game. Donald Trump recently declared that the United States Embassy in Israel would move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This was an obviously provocative and some would say ridiculous suggestion. But because Trump is patently ridiculous, we are not surprised. So will anyone say, wait a minute, maybe there's something in this? For a start, there's no way the American diplomats will want to move from lovely Tel Aviv by the sea to a potential war zone. In any case, recent experience in London 
suggests building a new US embassy in Jerusalem would be a nightmare. So who is Trump targeting with this provocation? The answer is both the Israelis and the Palestinians. To the Israelis, he's saying, I'm supporting you, but you need to talk to the Palestinians. To the Palestinians, he's saying, I'm not bluffing, so you need to talk to the Israelis. Of course, Trump is bluffing, but if it gets people talking, it might just do some good. I've always thought the Arabs should have Israel and the Jews should be given Arkansas. The only good thing to come out of Arkansas was Bill Clinton and the Americans skewered him over a skirmish with Monica Lewinsky. I don't know what Hillary Clinton did wrong, but they sure as hell didn't like her if they chose Donald Trump instead for president. Arkansas is a desert, perfect for hard-working Jewish emigres to convert into a fertile, fruit-growing paradise, just as they've done with Israel. On the 6th of February 1958, an air crash in Munich killed 21, seven of whom were on the Manchester United football team. On February the 8th, French planes bombed Sakiet in Tunisia, killing 75. On February the 22nd, Alec Guinness won a Golden Globe Award for the film Bridge Over the River Kwai. And on February the 11th, Ruth Carol Taylor was the first African-American woman to be hired as a flight attendant in Ithaca, New York. In 1958, she was probably called an air hostess. Back then, the job was glamorous, and so were the air hostesses. Now, the title hostess is pejorative and almost synonymous with prostitute. But for me, some of the most wonderful and beautiful people I have met, male and female, were cabin crew or flight attendants. Call them what you will. Being a flight attendant is no longer as glamorous as it was in the 1950s, but it clearly attracts those with a travel bug and a sense of adventure. And you have to like people, even discourteous, arrogant and sometimes violent people, for whom the stress of travelling brings out the worst side of their character. I recently had the privilege of travelling business class on an Emirates Airbus A380 from Dubai to Kuala Lumpur. Medics, and medical academics in particular, travel a lot. It is said that the art of medical research is converting your students' work into your own air miles. Some of my colleagues complain about how exhausting and demanding business travel is. My answer is, if it's business class with Emirates, I'll take your place. The business class seats on the A380 are on the upper deck. You even have your own air bridge to board the aircraft so you can get straight from the business class lounge to your business class seat without mixing with the poor people in economy. Before you leave the dock, you're offered a glass of champagne. It's always 6pm somewhere in the world. If there's a delay, you might even get a second glass, especially if you happen to mention to the flight attendant that you're Irish. I like to watch the nose camera during takeoff and landing. I'm not sure the sometimes nervous travellers in the next seat always appreciate my choice of entertainment. Landings especially can be exciting. Once in the air, I look for a movie, not a recent blockbuster, but something obscure. I found one called Return to Montauk, featuring unknown actors and made with a grant from the Belgian Film Board. I soon became captivated and wondered what it was about this story that was so riveting. The answer came with the final credits. The screenplay was by Colm Tobin, 
probably the jewel in the crown of brilliant contemporary Irish authors. I always feel rude watching a movie when a flight attendant comes to talk to me. My compromise is to use normal earphones like you use with a mobile phone, rather than the bulky cans that are supplied in the aircraft. These actually fit without an adapter if you fiddle about a bit with the socket, and you can remove the earpiece nearest the flight attendant when he or she comes to talk. Now I have to choose a drink before dinner and have a look at the wine list. Emirates sometimes have a white wine from the vast Felix Vineyard in Margaret River, south of Perth in Australia, where I will visit next month. And if you're lucky, you can follow this with a nice Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, preferably 2010 vintage. After dinner, it's time for a visit to the toilet. At my age, this routine is ritual if I'm to get a few hours of uninterrupted sleep. En route, I pass through the bar. Yes, the upper deck of the A380 has an actual bar with barmaids. Sorry, flight attendants. I got a bit carried away there. I make a note to check it out on the way back. Now I adopt the role of sad old man travelling alone and start telling my life story to a beautiful young woman from Sao Paulo who is serving the drink. And to get fully into the role, I decide to have a Jack Daniels on the rocks, like Frank Sinatra having one more for the road. And a second one. I'm convinced there's a button below the bar that sends a signal to the pilot to turn on the seatbelt sign. Right on cue, the light comes on, and I'm directed to move to a bench seat at the far side of the bar and strap myself in. Belt up and I'll bring you another Jack Daniels. Cabin crew are actually trained in dealing with sad old men who get emotional with the loneliness, the alcohol and the excitement of travel. And of course, what is said in the air stays in the air. At one stage, Virgin Atlantic had warnings that some of the movies might make you cry. Grown-up, hard-bitten men were becoming embarrassed when they burst into tears watching films on their planes. In a few minutes, the seatbelt sign goes out and I can resume my stance propping up the bar. But I've got the message. Time to go back to my seat and have a snooze. And the next thing you know, it's four hours later and time for another dinner. Or is it breakfast? As well as chatting up the flight attendants, male and female, I also like to get to know the passenger in the seat beside me. With a little practice, you can pick out those that like to chat and those that don't. The latter will explain in words of one syllable that they don't speak English and will later have a detailed conversation with the flight attendant about the exchange rates between dollars, euros and dirhams being charged for the duty-free perfumes in the catalogue. On the A380, the business class seats are a little cocoon with total privacy and all have direct access to the aisle so you don't have anyone crawling over you to go to the toilet. On the other Emirates aircraft, the Boeing 777, I like to choose seat 7D. This is the aisle seat in the row of three in the middle of the plane. The centre seat, 7E, is often vacant as the middle seats are unpopular. If it is occupied, it is often with someone who's been upgraded from economy. So you're either next to a seat that is empty or one occupied by someone who is happy. As I've said before, travel is all about people. Volare oh, Cantare 
Let's fly way up to the clouds Away from the maddening crowds We can sing in the glow of a star That I know of where lovers enjoy peace of mind Let us leave the confusion and all this illusion behind February 1968 Still in class 3A Still spotty Still hormonally emotional and still 13 and a half. This is the pre-transition year era, so no state exams until next year's intermediate certificate. In 1968, there was no transition year to DOS in. There were two DOS years, one before the inter and one after. Both years were preoccupied with girls, but third year was about hand-holding your sister's school friends if you were lucky. Fifth year was more serious. This was kissing, groping on sofas or behind sofas in the dark while your own or your friend's parents eavesdropped from their bedroom above. At some stage we'd become aware of the basics of human reproductive biology. We didn't have the internet, of course. I don't remember a birds and bees lecture from my father and there were no formal health or sex education classes. So I must have got it in biology class. But as for lovemaking technique, we were literally in the dark. But I'm rushing ahead, as young men do. On the 1st of February 1968, in Vietnam, Saigon Police Chief Nguyen Noc Loan executed Viet Cong officer Nguyen Van Lem with a pistol shot to the head. The execution is captured by photographer Eddie Adams, and the photograph, as we would now say, goes viral as a symbol of the horror that is the Vietnam War. On February the 6th, the Dutch government condemned the US bombing of North Vietnam. On the same day, former US President Dwight Eisenhower shot a hole-in-one at golf. On February the 13th, the US sent another 10,500 soldiers to Vietnam. On February the 7th, one of Arthur Miller's best-known plays, The Price, premiered in New York. The movie Planet of the Apes premiered in New York on February the 8th. During the month of February 1968, the Winter Olympics were going on in Grenoble, France. On February 16th, Beatles George Harrison, John Lennon and their wives flew to India to study transcendental meditation with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. On February 29th, the Beatles album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band became the first rock album to win a Grammy Award. On February 22nd, rock group Genesis released their first record, Silent Sun. Hard to believe it's 50 years since Phil Collins got started. He's beginning to show his age a bit now. The first most of my generation heard about meditation was when the Beatles went to study with the Maharishi in India. For years, we believed it was a sort of cannabis-fueled oblivion. Recently, meditation has been reinvented as mindfulness and is most fashionable with people who wouldn't dream of having a joint in the house and are terrified of what their teenage children are up to. Most of the modern aficionados of mindfulness would benefit from a trip to India and a puff of weed if they just got a bit braver. Not that I'm advocating drug use, far from it. My own brief encounter with marijuana happened in the car park of Old Wesley Rugby Club around 1970. 
I'd already had a few pints of Guinness and I was as sick as a dog. Nobody told me not to mix alcohol and cannabis. Luckily, full-face helmets for motorbikes had not yet been invented, or I would have drowned. February 1978, final med, and one more of my hero mentors to add to the wall of fame. Vincent Sheehan was a general surgeon at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, the city of my birth. How come you were born in Drogheda, people sometimes ask. My reply is, my mother was there at the time. Having spent Saturday morning absorbing endocrinology and cardiology from Michael Cullen in the Meath Hospital, and Jerry Geerty in Baggett Street, we piled into the minis and headed north. Then, as now, the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda was affiliated with the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, RCSI. But the word was out that Vincent Sheehan was a great teacher, so we Trinity types gatecrashed the gig and were made welcome. Dozens of students, maybe even a hundred, filled the lecture hall in the hospital. One by one, patients were escorted in by a nurse and Mr Sheehan demonstrated some key point of the history or some physical sign. He backed the clinical story up with x-rays that indicated the diagnosis. So, for example, in a patient with hiatus hernia, he showed a barium study of the stomach and the esophagus. Pointing to a spot a few centimetres above the diaphragm, he said, Do you see this fellow here? He says, My name is Ruga. This meant part of the stomach was above the diaphragm, a hiatus hernia. The tutorial was not only a demonstration. It was, as we would say today, interactive. This meant Sheehan could pick on anyone in the audience and ask them a question. After hearing the answer, he would give feedback. But this feedback was not the little chat in a private room that starts with the positives and leads gently towards remediation. It was the then standard public humiliation. So that's your answer, is it? Well, if you were working for me and you gave me that answer, here's what my response would be. There are buses leaving the bus station in Drogheda for Dublin every hour on the hour. Be on the next one. But the beautiful side of this now unfashionable authoritarian demeanour was that Sheehan, like all good doctors, had not, as they say, a bad bone in his body. He loved people, and people loved him. We were also shown some extraordinary cases that would not feature in a live show today. There were trauma cases from tractor accidents, horrendous examples of breast cancer that the modest middle-aged loud women had concealed until the tumour was nearly bigger than they were, all sorts of liver and gallbladder pathology, 
colon cancers requiring abdominal perineal resection or colostomy and one vividly memorable case of acute appendicitis. A young man had been admitted on Saturday morning with features typical of appendicitis, abdominal pain, fever, tenderness and rebound in the right iliac fossa. Vincent Sheehan had seen the man that morning, consented him for surgery and kept him fasting. He then brought him to the lecture theatre to demonstrate his clinical features. After the tutorial, when we students were in the canteen on a tea break, he took the patient to the operating theatre, removed his appendix and returned in time for a quick cup of tea himself and then the second half of the show. Incidentally, the tea and biscuits were supplied free of charge by the hospital, who were justly proud of their surgeons, all two of them, and delighted to welcome medical students of all hues and affiliations. After tea was a slideshow for another hour. As well as being a skilled surgeon and a great teacher, Sheehan was a keen photographer. He had a vast collection of clinical photographs. Not only could he comment on the content of the photographs, but also on technical aspects. You see how authentically red the blood is when you use ectochrome film. I wonder what became of his collection of clinical photographs. Hopefully they're preserved in an institutional museum or library, maybe in the RCSI. Must find out. When the show was over, round 5pm, we all piled into the minis and headed back south of the border, but only as far as the town of Swords, just south of the Meath-Dublin border. Here was a hostelry known as the Harp, where we rewarded ourselves for nine hours solid learning with copious pints of beer. The entourage was predominantly male, but one or two brave women who had the hunger for medical knowledge had taken the risk and signed up. It was in the Harp that we tried to establish whether these studious types had a lighter side. They certainly had sharp tongues as well as sharp scalpels. And even before they themselves became famous surgeons, they knew how to deal with upstart medical students. So they remained, for most of their colleagues, the subject of boyish fantasy. Except, of course, for the couple of lucky lads who married them. I wouldn't mind, but their future husbands weren't even on the expedition. They sidled in later and stole the spoils from under our noses. February 1988. For the first time in the doctor's letter, and possibly for the first time in my life, I can't think of anything to say. February is the worst month of the year. I can tolerate the shortening of the days coming up to Christmas and the New Year. I'm less bothered than most by the short, dark, wet and financially squeezed days of January. We sense a barely detectable but nonetheless looked for earlier sunrise and later sunset although we rarely have a day clear enough to see either. But as February approaches 
and St Bridget heralds the first day of spring on the first day of the month, she fails to keep her promise. The days remain short, dark and wet. We may steal a few days to go skiing or to the Caribbean, but both these options are hideously expensive, so we return after a week of contrived holiday fun to the same short, dark, wet days, only now or even more broke as well as seasonally sad. In February 1988, I was applying for jobs, which was also a depressing exercise. Despite years of clinical training and experience in general medicine and respiratory medicine, during which I've taken senior clinical responsibility and made dozens of literally life or death decisions, I am not deemed ready for elevation to a consultant post. Well, I am ready, of course, there are just no jobs. Even though the failure to gain promotion is not personal, it seems so. And the nagging doubts and the what-ifs and the paranoia nag away at me, as they do all of us some of the time, and some of us all of the time. But I'm going to save the description of how I got my next job till next month, because that story is itself depressing. And much of the stupidity I faced in the recruitment and selection of junior doctors is still there 30 years later. So at 5am on a dark, cold, but mercifully dry morning at the end of February 2018, and only nine hours after my arrival home from four weeks of travelling in Malaysia, India and the United Arab Emirates, I need something a bit lighter than NCHD recruitment and maybe something stronger than the albeit delicious Indian coffee I bought with the last of my rupees in the duty-free shop at Bangalore Airport yesterday. So if there wasn't much going on in my life in February 1988, was there anything interesting going on in the world? Not really. Nurses and seamen in Britain were on strike. The United States and the USSR were testing nuclear bombs at Nevada and Kazakhstan, respectively. The Winter Olympics were going on in Calgary, Canada. And on February the 20th, singer-songwriter Robin Rihanna Fenty was born in St. Michael, Barbados. Shine bright like a diamond Shine bright like a diamond Fine light in the beautiful sea I chose to be happy You and I, you and I We're like diamonds in the sky You're a shooting star I see A vision of ecstasy When you hold me, I'm alive We're like February 1998. If nothing much happened in February 1988, there was almost too much going on in February 1998. On February the 1st, Lillian Fishburne became the first female African-American to be promoted to Rear Admiral. Martina Hingis beat Conchita Martinez to win the Women's Australian Tennis Open. A Philippines DC-9 crashed, killing 104. A US military plane on a NATO exercise clipped cable car lines in Cavalese, northern Italy, killing 20. Four more Italians were killed and 50 injured in a 250-car pileup in fog. Tornadoes in Florida killed 31. An earthquake in Afghanistan killed 5,000. Washington National Airport was renamed 
Ronald Reagan National Airport. White House intern Monica Lewinsky was offered $5 million for an interview by a Las Vegas radio station. Osama bin Laden published a fatwa declaring jihad against all Jews and crusaders. Singer Elton John was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Switzerland opened its first legal brothel in Zurich. The Winter Olympics were going on in Nagano, Japan. Hang on a second. I thought the Olympic Games happened every four years. How can you have them in Calgary, Canada in 1988 and in Nagano, Japan in 1998? Until 1992, the Winter and Summer Games were held in the same year. In that year, the Winter Games were in Albertville, France, and the Summer Games in Barcelona, Spain. Thereafter, it was decided to stagger the Summer and Winter Games two years apart. So the next Winter Games were in 1994, in Lillehammer, Norway, and the next Summer Games in 1996, in Atlanta, Georgia. So the 1998 Winter Games in Nagano were ten years after the 1988 Games in Calgary. Winter Olympic Games were never the massive global spectacle that the Summer Games are. Winter sport is inevitably developed in places where they get lots of snow and don't make a fuss. Scandinavia, Switzerland, Canada, Japan. This year, 2018, the Winter Olympics were in Seoul, South Korea. Following the previous Games in Sochi in Russia, this event has become a farce. In Sochi, they don't actually get much snow and it had to be manufactured. The Russian athletes were all suffering from mysterious heart disease and taking a drug no Irish cardiologist has probably even heard of, much less prescribed. In Seoul, sworn enemies North and South Korea decided at the last minute to field a combined team. Because of drug scandals, Russia were not allowed to field a national team, but Russian athletes that had not failed dope tests were allowed to compete as individuals. In Seoul, a few more of these Russian athletes also failed dope tests. Something subtle was happening in my own life. My good friend and colleague John Fennell, a now retired physician at St Columkill's Hospital in Lochlinstown, a 100-bed hospital south of Dublin, asked me if I could do weekend consultant locum work on a one-in-three rotor. There were two consultant physicians at that time, John Fennell and Morgan Crow. They worked one-in-two on call and were contractually entitled to rest days because of the onerous rotor. I enjoyed these weekends and the money was handy, so when John approached me later that year and asked if I could work part-time at St Columkills to allow him to take a sessional commitment at St Vincent's, our larger sister hospital a few miles away, I agreed. For the next 20 years I enjoyed what I'd always regarded as the best of both worlds, the intimacy of a small acute hospital with a rural base and the convenience of living in the South Dublin suburbs. On the 28th of February 1998, another Arthur Miller masterpiece, View from the Bridge, closed at the Criterion Theatre, New York.
February 2008. The Chadwicks were resting after an extended tour of India, New Zealand, Australia and Hong Kong. While in Australia we bought a house. Not in Australia, in Ireland. Before leaving Ireland in November 2007, we made an offer on a house with a bit of land in County Wicklow. My daughter Ruth, who had recently graduated with a business degree, decided the business she wished to pursue was riding and training dressage horses. I wasn't sure I understood the business model. All I knew about horses was you put cash in one end and got manure out the other. But she was determined, she was our only daughter, and the idea of a move to the country was attractive. So just before Christmas 2007, in Sydney, I had a telephone call with my solicitor in Dublin, the punchline of which was, so to be clear, I'm going to write a large cheque on your behalf, and in March 2008, you and Sue will become the owners of a Georgian farmhouse on 25 acres. Is that right? Right. And the rest, as they say, is history. Ten years on, we are living happily an idyllic rural dream with an extended family comprising myself and my wife, my daughter Ruth and her husband Barry, and our granddaughter Laura, aged 21 months, and another on the way, and Nelson, a black Labrador dog. The privilege of breakfasting every day with your grandchild is immense, and I feel for the thousands of Irish grandparents whose only contact with their grandchildren is through Skype. In February 2008, Amy Winehouse won a Grammy Award. Atonement won a BAFTA. This is the movie where beautiful Kira Knightley gets into and out of a fountain in a flimsy dress. I'm sure other things happened in the movie, but that scene is embedded in my memory. No Country for Old Men with Daniel Day-Lewis won an Oscar. French President Nicolas Sarkozy married supermodel Carla Bruni in the Elysee Palace. Oasis singer Noel Gallagher married All Saints singer Nicole Appleton. Actor Sean Bean married actress Georgina Sutcliffe. Actress Pamela Anderson divorced Rick Salomon due to irreconcilable differences two months after their wedding. And Douglas Fraser, a Scottish pilot who was the first to land at Newfoundland Airport after an east-west flight across the Atlantic Ocean in 1938, died on February the 23rd, age 92. February 2018. As I mentioned in the introduction, I've spent this month travelling extensively. On Friday the 26th of January, I attended a meeting of the Council of the RCPI in Dublin's Kildare Street that ended at 4pm.
My trip was to be mainly RCPI business, so I assembled an assortment of collectibles to give as presents. Ties and cufflinks for the gentlemen, scarves, very nice chiffon and silk scarves for the ladies, and books. From time to time, the college publishes books about the history of Irish medicine. Widdis's history of RCPI 1654 to 1964 is the most dense of these, and there was obviously a large print run because there are still cabinets full of copies of this tome, which after 50 years are acquiring a nice patina of must and mildew. The Indian doctors in particular love this book. There's also a range of excellent works on Irish medical history, written by my good friend and colleague Davis Coakley, a retired geriatrician from St James's Hospital. My favourite of Coakley's books is a biography of Robert Graves, one of the famous 19th century Irish physicians, who, like Stokes, worked at Dublin's Meath Hospital and described the thyroid disease that bears his name. Coakley is at present completing a history of St James's Hospital, which he will publish later this year, and which I look forward to reading. College archivist Harriet Wheelock is a wonderful and interesting woman whose enthusiasm for history is infectious. She recently accumulated a collection of books and curios for me to take as presents. The clothing now adorns the wrists and necks of physicians, nurses, hospital administrators, deans and vice-chancellors of medical colleges in Malaysia, Calcutta, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Oman, Mangalore, Bangalore and Kerala. Two of the books have made it to the library of India's Manipal University. The ties, scarves and cufflinks are also popular and much sought after, especially by younger doctors involved in organising the MRCPI examination in our international centres. This is slightly ironic, since our microbiology colleagues have stated that these fomites carry potentially dangerous pathogenic bacteria, and the infection control police have decreed that male doctors must be naked below the elbows and tieless. They've also criticised women's handbags, but we don't hear so much about them in the infection control guidelines. So Harriet and I packed all this paraphernalia into my suitcase and I headed to Kyo's pub in Ann Street to etch on my memory what a real pint of Guinness tastes like before heading off on the missions. At 6pm, the nice man from Emirates collected me in his nice big Mercedes and we headed for Terminal 2 at Dublin Airport. During the next month, I saw sites in Malaysia, India and the UAE. I walked to the Batu Caves in Kuala Lumpur and Aral Migu Bathande Panathi hilltop temple in Penang, at both of which I received the smear of sandalwood paste on my forehead as a blessing from the Hindu god Murugan, whose festival Taipusam is celebrated during the full moon in the month of Thai, January. So I was twice blessed. I also kept the other gods on side by visiting a Buddhist centre for meditation and well-being, the Catholic and Anglican cathedrals in Penang, and a mosque. Taipusam had a particular significance this year since there were two full moons in the month of January, a blue moon. There was also a lunar eclipse on the 31st of January, which was visible in Malaysia, a blood moon. I saw this eclipse in Penang, where I met a young man with a huge camera. 
he turned out to be a professional photographer who was looking forward to a trip to Prague later in the year and whose brother, who was with him, is a retired principal from a Penang school. Like all retired teachers, he bemoaned the attitude of kids these days who neither speak, read nor write with any fluency and are wasting their lives on trivia. Shakespeare's teachers probably said the same about him. The photographer kindly emailed me some of the shots he'd taken so I could delete my pathetic attempts on the mobile phone and use professionally taken pictures of the eclipse to WhatsApp my friends with. It's okay to send WhatsApps at 2am in Malaysia because it's only 6pm in Ireland. I later walked up Penang Hill, 833 metres of ascent, in 30 degrees of heat and 95% humidity, on a path, some of which had been washed away in storms the previous November. I remember thinking, if I fall here, that'll be the end of me. Mobile phone or not, they'll never find me. When I reached the top of the hill, the only way down was by the funicular railway that normal, sensible people use to get to the top. It was Saturday afternoon and there was a lengthy queue. From the bottom, I took a taxi back to the hotel. The other memorable site I visited on this trip was the new Louvre Museum in Abu Dhabi, a spectacular building with art, sculpture and archaeology, beautifully laid out over 15 or so rooms, starting about 5000 BC and finishing with contemporary artworks exhibited for the first time. There are simple explanations of each exhibit at each display, so you need neither map nor guide to enjoy and learn. But don't attempt it in an hour, as most other tourists there seem to be doing. They were focused not on the art, but on their little folding maps they picked up at the ticket desk. For them, a museum is an orienteering course, whose obstacles must be cleared in the minimum time as they race to their next meal. The Louvre Abu Dhabi needs a good three hours, and like all great museums and galleries, you can go back to the same exhibits any number of times and have a new experience each time. But, as I always say, travel is all about people. It would take a whole doctor's letter, or maybe a lifetime, to describe all the people I have met in the last month. Flight attendants, taxi drivers, people serving in bars, lounges and restaurants, and other travellers. Elegant French families, Belgian horse breeders, Dutch sun seekers, Indian wedding guests from Leicester in the UK. And the other solo travellers, what is their story? The retired tea importer from Geneva, whose husband prefers to stay at home. The school teacher from Taiping in Malaysia, who tries to teach English in a rural school. And the nurse from Cebu in the Philippines, who worked in Saudi Arabia and didn't like it and who's now travelling alone in Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore and Macau. They all, we all, have stories to tell. And to each we tell a true story, but a different one depending on how the relationship develops. And it all happens in a few hours. To some we talk about travel, to others food. And to some we tell secrets we've never told anyone else. And then we part. We may exchange business cards, but we know we'll never see or hear from them again. It is the omerta of the lone traveller. What's said in the air stays in the air.
And finally, a poem. A Gynaecologist in Dubai, Fishing at Evening, by Paul Durkin. Twice over and now at 65, here I am, an ordinary Dublin man with my own five-bedroom apartment in Dubai as a bolt hole from my Edwardian mansion in Dublin. It's pleasant to get away from the rain and the cold for a couple of weeks as well as from the job. I do get bored, not to say somewhat impatient, with all these women discovering childbirth as if nobody before them in history had ever given birth to an infant. Fishing at evening in the Sheikh Mohammed Abdullah Lake, built incidentally by Byrne Brothers of Dublin, fondling my rod, I come to thinking that the secrets of a successful life such as mine reside in my selection of hooks over a lifetime. Obstetrics, golf, Thai wife, house. I caught all the right fish. I am somewhat proud of being Irish at the commencement of the 21st century. It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me So set em up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know We're drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my baby and one more for the I got the routine Put another nickel In the machine Feeling so bad Can't you make the music could tell you a lot But you've gotta be True to your code Just make it one for my baby And one more for the Never know it, but buddy, I'm a kind of poet, and I got a lot of things I'd like to say. 
On the doctor's letter we heard, Bridge on the River Kwai by the Hollywood soundtrack band. Right on Time by the Key and Boylan Trio. Volare by Dean Martin. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting by Elton John. Diamonds by Rihanna. BBC Ski Sunday theme by Cinema Stars. Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. That's What Friends Are For by Dionne Warwick. And One For My Baby by Frank Sinatra. I am Jeff Chadwick. This has been The Doctor's Letter. You can read The Doctor's Letter at www.thedoctorsletter.com. The Doctor's Letter is written by Jeff Chadwick and produced by Gavin Hennessy. Join us next time for the next Doctor's Letter. Good night. That I found, it's gotta be drowned, or it soon might explode. So make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. The long, it's so long.